0: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
1: Ch-ch-chumba.
0: ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. Eighteen plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Three, two, one.
0: But I'm working out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to
2: it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. We. We. It is Monday, July 17th, 2023. People. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. And can you smell it in the air? Football season is coming. That's right. What, you know, waffle it, waifle it in, whatever the term is. Football is here. We got a loaded show. This is what we're going to talk about today. So Monday launches SEC Media Days, which I believe is the unofficial start of college football season. We've danced around college football. Today we're diving two feet in. I've been doing all my prep. And as SEC Media Days launches, I have the five biggest questions in the SEC this year. We're going to stick with five, because if I go 10, uh, the show might be two and a half hours. So five questions on the SEC. Can Georgia 3 Pete, Alabama versus LSU in the West? What about AM, and Tennessee, Kentucky? Who's number two in the SEC East? A lot of good stuff to dive into. From there, we will take a quick break. We will discuss, speaking of Tennessee, That Jeremy Pruitt situation was resolved on Friday for people who missed it. The NCAA investigation into Tennessee football wrapped. Jeremy Pruitt was running roughshod over there in Knoxville. Wait till you hear the details of what happened. Tennessee was the punishment fair or not. We discussed that. And then finally, we will wrap with actually a little college hoops. Don't know how much more hoops is really on the docket for 2023, the summer, but at the same time, Kentucky wraps its foreign tour. A lot to react to. We talked about the first two games on Friday's show. Two more this weekend. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Is Kentucky better than we thought? So, loaded Monday show. Jam-packed show. Let's not waste any more time. And let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, listen. In my opinion, there. Well, it's not even my opinion. Biggest story in college sports right now, this second, SEC Media Days. It is this Monday through Thursday. All 14 SEC coaches will be speaking. And I'll say this. I've actually come full circle on SEC Media Days. Initially, I wasn't always the biggest fan of Media Days, how much new information really comes out. But at the same time, I have started to accept over the last couple years Media Days for what it is. What it is, is the unofficial launch of college football season. You get most of the biggest names in college football. Obviously, we got big-name coaches in the Pac-12, the the Big Ten, uh, the ACC, whatever. But you get most of those big names. Kirby Smart, Nick Saban, Brian Kelly, Lane Kiffin, Josh Heupel, whoever. At SEC Media Days. And so, to me, it's the unofficial launch. It feels like the start of college football, and I am fired up. What I want to do today is to preview SEC Media Days, which is going on this week. I want to start with what I deem to be the five biggest questions in the SEC going into 2023. And as I said to lead the show, limited it to five, because if I go with 10, there's there's a question or two for every team. But I've done the 10 questions before, and it turns into a two-hour show, so we're not going to do that. So let's get to the five biggest questions in the SEC, heading into SEC media days in 2023. And let's start with question number one. Question number one is, can Georgia go back to back to back? They're like Tom Amansky, back to back to back national championships for Tom Amansky's AAU team? What about back to back to back for Kirby Smart and Georgia? By the way, this stat will kind of blow you away. You know the last time that a college football team won three straight national championships? Bama's never done it. Wasn't Pete Carroll in USC. Wasn't any of those great Miami teams, those great Nebraska teams. The last time a team went back to back to back in college football, the Minnesota Golden Gophers from 1934 to 1936. Not sure how much you remember about those teams. I'm blanking when I think about my favorite memories of the golden gophers of 34 to 36. So it has been a while. And what I would say is Georgia is the favorite going in and they should be. And if they do it, I don't think anybody should be surprised. Listen, I I've been a little critical of Georgia over the last couple months, but at the end of the day, the football operation is operating at an insane level. And here's the crazy thing about Georgia. I was at that national championship game at SoFi stadium. And if you go back to what Kirby smart said after Georgia beat TCU to go back to back, he actually said, you know what? This was actually the rebuilding year. This was the year 2022 that you were supposed to catch us. And he said, our biggest opponent in 2023 is going to be us because this was the year where we were replacing so many guys. 15 NFL draft picks were being replaced at this time last year. And he basically said like, we have a chance to be really special next year. Well, next year is now, and there's no reason to think Georgia can't do it again. I know they lost Stetson Bennett to the NFL. I know they lost Todd Monk in the offensive coordinator. But from an offensive perspective, this is a team that has a fourth-year quarterback in its program, Carson Beck. I think that's important to note. Like, people like, oh, they lost Stetson Bennett. Carson Beck was ready to start a year ago. And, of course, Stetson Bennett, because of COVID, had the extra year of eligibility. Carson Beck, to his credit, sticks around for another year. Now, after four years in the program, well, this is his fourth year. He is ready, and I don't think this Georgia offense is going to miss a beat. He'll have plenty of weapons. A lot of key running backs are back. Uh, Two really good wide receivers out of the portal. Ra Ra Thomas, the leading receiver from Mississippi State. Dominic Lovett, an all-SEC receiver from Missouri. So the weapons on offense will be there. The defense has a chance to be as good as it's ever been with seven starters back off last year's team, multiple guys projected in next year's first round or in the 2025 NFL draft. Michael Williams along the defensive line, Smile Munded at linebacker, Jamon Dumas Johnson, Javon Bullard uh, at safety. You go on and on down this list. This team is stacked. At the same time, there will be. Uh, let, 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 let me see this. First of all, it's obviously really hard to go three P in in college football. The fact that Nick Saban never did it. Kirby smart never did it. Tom Osborne never did it. It shows you. And I do think it will be interesting to see. And Georgia fans are going to get mad at me for saying this, but I do think it'll be interesting to see how this team handles a lot of the adversity that came in the offseason. And I've done my spiels. I've talked about what Georgia has been involved in, what they've been guilty of, what they've not been guilty of all of the things that have gone on in that program outside of, um, you know, outside of the football field. And I've criticized Kirby Smart. I've criticized the program. But what I do think is interesting is how does this team handle all of the adversity, all of the questions for the first time, it isn't all kind of peaches and roses and sunshine, some sunshine and rainbows in Athens. And most importantly, I'll also add this. And and like Georgia fans are going to get mad at me for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Do we think that there's a little bit of a sense of entitlement that's crept into this program? Because you can sit there and say that, okay, like maybe some of the stuff is overblown. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. But when you continually have players breaking the law, even if it's minor things like speeding, parking violations, whatever, don't you kind of feel like there's a little bit of a sense of entitlement creeping into that program that guys feel like they can get away with stuff because they're Georgia football players. Maybe that's armchair analysis, whatever. I think there's something to it. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this as it pertains to Georgia. I remember many years ago talking to uh, a coach that was part of the Miami early 2000s national championship teams. And I may have shared this story before if I have, forgive me. But if you remember Miami 2000, they were probably the best team in college football, did not get to play for the national championship in the BCS era. 2001, they destroy everybody, win the championship. Some deem them to be the greatest college football team of all time. 2002, regular season, destroy everybody, play Ohio State in the national championship game. And it was kind of a foregone conclusion that they were going to win it. Why do I bring it up? It's because I remember talking to one of their coaches and he said the problem that we dealt with all year was complacency the fact that we had guys in that program that hadn't been part of championship teams that felt like, because I got recruited by Miami because I committed to Miami because I've never even played a down for Miami, but I'm part of this. So I'm a two-time national, I'm a a national champion. I've done it before. No, 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 no. You weren't on the field. You weren't part of it. You did not do this. And that's kind of what I'm thinking about with Georgia right now is the idea that you got to remember, we now have two straight national championships which means that if you include the class that just got recruited, three-quarters of that team, the juniors, the sophomores, and the freshmen, they've never had a season end at Georgia that didn't result in a national championship. And so to keep them focused for 15 games is not going to be easy in the SEC. I know the schedule is easy, but you're going to have to beat Alabama or LSU probably to play for a title Uh, to to, to, to win the SEC. You're probably going to have to then at that point – um go on and obviously beat two teams in the college football playoff. So it's not going to be easy. I'll wrap finally by saying this. I remember that Miami coach telling me prior to the Ohio state game, being on the field, talking to somebody that had been part of national championships before and saying to that guy, again, coming off a national championship, they're favored heavily to win. Number two, the coach asked this guy, he said, how long do you think this is going to go, man? And the, the guy that he spoke with said, you know what? It's probably already turning in the wrong direction. And you guys just don't realize it yet. Not saying that's happened with Georgia Kirby smarts in his late mid to late forties. He's going to be around for a while. Georgia's going to win a lot of games under him. I do think they're going to struggle to win number three. Let's keep it going. The second question in the sec, by the way, I'm already going long. Forgive me, whatever it's college football. I'm fired up. Let's get to the number two question in the sec going into this year. And that is pretty straightforward. Who's the best team in the SEC West? And more importantly, has LSU officially surpassed Alabama? Remember, last year, what happened in the West? Brian Kelly, year one, comes in and a funny thing happens. He has elite talent, talent that maybe he didn't have at Notre Dame, and he proves how good of a coach he is. LSU wins 10 games. LSU goes, wins the SEC West, goes to the SEC title game, beats Alabama, they take over the SEC West. But here's the crazy part. Not only did they beat Alabama with Bryce Young, Will Anderson, Jameer Gibbs, all those guys, they returned most of their team this year. Jaden Daniels, their quarterback, is back. Um, uh, Harold Perkins, maybe the best edge rusher in college football, is back. Malik Nabors, elite wide receiver, is back. Both starting offensive tackles were true freshmen last year. They're back. LSU added players through the portal. And so it's interesting because you counter that with what Alabama is going through, new quarterback, no Will Anderson, and oh, by the way, coming off a season where they didn't win the SEC West. And I do think that, listen, I'm recording. Some of you probably won't see this or hear this until after the media poll comes out. But when the media poll comes out, which it has not yet as I record this, I think LSU is going to be picked to win the West. Now, here's what I'm here to tell you. Sleep on Alabama if you want. Sleep on Nick Saban if you want. And we might do this as a bigger segment as we get closer to the year. I believe for the first time, maybe in forever, maybe in the history of Nick Saban and Alabama, Alabama is actually being overlooked coming into this year. And I do think Alabama should be favored to win the West. And let me explain why. So a couple things. One, to me, the reason that Alabama probably will not be picked to win the West, and you'll have clarification on that by the time that you listen to this but why I don't think they're going to be picked to win the West is pretty straightforward. It's because they lost to LSU last year. And as I said, no starting quarterback, no quarterback has been established behind Bryce young. And so when I look at why people are doubting Alabama, I think it comes down to three things. One for the first time, since when Jalen hurts got to Alabama, we're not totally sure who the starting quarterback is. Remember Jalen hurts wins that job as a true freshman. He keeps it for two years. Tua takes it for two years. And then from there, Mac Jones has it and Bryce Young has it. And so even when there was a transition at quarterback, you kind of knew who was next. And this is the first time in Alabama that we don't know. Jalen Milrow, we saw in limited opportunities last year. I don't know if he's the guy. Ty Simpson struggled in spring ball. Whispers are, rumors are that it was a lot of turnovers, interceptions, couldn't take care of the football. Then you go out and get Tyler Buckner from Notre Dame, a guy who wasn't even going to be the starting quarterback at Notre Dame. And he's coming to Alabama. And I'll just say this. I don't think he comes to Alabama if he doesn't think he is going to win that starting quarterback job. So the fact that he's coming to Alabama probably tells you everything you need to know about where the status of this quarterback situation is for Bama. Beyond that, I think outside of the quarterback situation, so I think that's one, right? The fact that we don't know who the quarterback is, we know who LSU's quarterback is. Number two, it is the fact that they lost to LSU. But let me ask you a question about that LSU game from last year. How did that game go down? LSU wins, that's all we remember. Well, the game was in Baton Rouge. LSU needed the final play in overtime to win that game. And so here's my question. If that same play happens, But instead, I'm going the whole, um, you know, a a butterfly effect. If instead of Jaden Daniels completing that pass to Mason Taylor to win that game and beat Alabama, if that pass gets batted down, are we talking about Alabama? Are we talking about LSU as the best team in the conference? Remember, two-point conversion in overtime at home. If it gets batted down, are we talking LSU? I don't think we are. And so to me, that one play changed our perception, but this year, the game is at in Tuscaloosa, Alabama will be at home. I think by the time we get there, they'll probably be favored. The last thing that I, the reason I like Alabama, let me be honest, is like, I think we have to also obviously, and this comes every year with every team in college football, you have to factor in the schedule. Remember last year, Alabama, you could argue it's three toughest games last season. We're all on the road at Texas, at Tennessee, at LSU. Guess where all those games are in 2023. Tuscaloosa, Tuscaloosa, Tuscaloosa. So I could go on and on. And by the way, if an LSU fan finds this, they're going to be mad. They think I hate Brian Kelly. I love Brian Kelly. I've been defending Brian Kelly since the early Notre Dame days. I've been defending Brian Kelly since the Cincinnati days, when he was at Cincinnati and Torres was at UConn. But I got to call a spade a spade. I think Alabama is wildly underrated coming into this year.
1: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Let's keep it going with number three on this list. Uh, and number three in terms of the biggest questions in the SEC. What do we make of Texas A&M? Texas A&M, of course, is coming off that disastrous, disastrous 5-7 and seven season. The offense is a mess. Jimbo is forced to hire Bobby Petrino. And everybody's ready to say that Jimbo's terrible. He's overrated. He needs to be fired. Buy out this, that. The other thing. Well, I'm here to say this. Don't laugh. I kind of like Texas A&M going into this year. And let me start by saying this. I feel like over the years, I've become a little bit of a, I wouldn't call myself a Jimbo apologist, but I think a lot of people would. But here's the bottom line. Last year was a train wreck. I can't argue it. I'm not going to deny it. Five and seven for the Aggies. But remember, it was just the 2020 season. So not that long ago, they finished fifth in the country and probably should have been in the college football playoff over Notre Dame. They didn't get in, whatever. But last year was Jimbo's fifth year, and it was the first time they haven't won at least eight games. It was eight games. It was nine games, eight games, nine games, eight games. And then five, five wins last year. And I get it. The guys paid a lot of money to win a lot of games. $9 million is not, it, you know, there's a reason they call them Texas eight and four, right? Got to win more, got to beat the teams that you're supposed to. But at the same time, let's, we just talked about Alabama and LSU. The butterfly effect of if that play for LSU doesn't go their way, do we th- still think of them as better than Alabama? Well, let's look at Texas A&M and why I'm so high on them. One. They went five and seven last year. You guys understand that of those seven losses, five were by a touchdown or less, right? Five were by a touchdown or less. The Alabama game also came down to the final play. Unlike LSU, they did not convert on that. The South Carolina game, Texas A&M literally outscored South Carolina after the first play of the game. South Carolina returns the opening kick for a touchdown. After that play, Texas A&M outscored them. Late gaff against uh, Ole Miss. Could have won that game. And then, oh, by the way, do not forget, they closed the season. You know who they beat? The same team that you love in the West, LSU, Texas A&M beat them last year. And so I don't think this is a national championship team. But can five and seven, you win a couple of those games? Yeah, I think you can. And I think it's also worth noting this. Like everyone wants to crush A&M and crush Jimbo, and I get it. Deservedly so. But remember also this. There were a lot of injuries on that team. And I know everybody deals with injuries. But think about this. With A&M, by the end of the year, they're, they were down to their third-string quarterback. Connor Wegman was supposed to redshirt last year. He was starting by the end of the year. Also, on top of that, injuries across the board. The O-line was basically a backup O-line by the end of the year. Aniah Smith, their best returning wide receiver, was out three, four games into the season. Well, guess what happened? All those freshmen that were part of that 2022 class, they were all thrown into the fire and it did not go well. But then those guys are now mostly back. You lost a few, but it was mostly guys you kind of wanted to lose. And now you have experienced guys that are, that, that were already playing, plus the backups that got experienced last year. And so I look at this team. I'm not saying that this second they're going to flip. You know, they're going 11-1 and and they're winning the, the SEC West. But I think Jimbo is going to do enough to survive this year. And I think really next year is going to be the year for Jimbo. Because remember, that 2022 recruiting class, the greatest of all time, next year they're all going to be draft-eligible juniors. If you can't get to the playoff in 2024, especially a 12-team playoff, by the way, not even factoring that in, I think Jimbo is going to do enough. I think he's going to get eight, nine wins, do enough win uh, uh, to keep his job, and then everything's gearing up for 2024. All right, really quickly the last two biggest storylines. Number 1, which is also number 4 on the storylines. Number 4 on our storylines list is this. Who's the second best team in the SEC East? Georgia's number 1. I'm not going to argue with you. I think there's three or four teams that believe that with the right breaks they could be it. Now, I don't buy Florida this year. The schedule is just brutal. at LSU, at Utah, Florida State at home, plus you know, just a brutal schedule. Like 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 Everything that Florida has on the normal schedule in the SEC, plus a road game at Utah and a home game versus Florida State in the out-of-conference. You could argue Florida has the toughest schedule in college football this year. Also don't believe in South Carolina. Spencer Rattler's back, but basically all his best skill position guys are gone. The two teams that I think are interesting, one is Tennessee and the other is Kentucky, believe it or not. From the Tennessee perspective, listen. It all comes down to Joe Milton, right? I'm not going to spend 20 minutes breaking down Tennessee's too deep because they returned their top two rushers, three of their top four receivers from last year, a couple pieces on the O-line. The defense is better than you remember. But none of it matters if Joe Milton ain't ready to go at quarterback. He was awesome in that Orange Bowl against Clemson, but kind of like a 53 54% completion guy the rest of his career. Remember, he came to Tennessee two years ago, won the job, then lost it to Hennon Hooker. And so it all comes down to him. On the flip side, you know who I'm actually higher on coming into the year than most people? It's the Kentucky Wildcats, and it sounds crazy. Oh, Torres, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me explain why. A year ago, I was out on Kentucky, and I was out on Kentucky because I thought the quarterback, Will Levis, was overrated. I know Kentucky fans, ah, whatever. Here's the thing, though. I thought Will Levis was a little bit overrated. Change it. offensive coordinator, Rich Scagnarello is in. Well, this year, they bring back Liam Cohen. As the offensive coordinator, they won 10 games with him calling plays two years ago. But here's the other thing. I was down on Kentucky two years ago. Didn't buy uh, didn't buy Kentucky. Or I was down on Kentucky last year because I didn't believe in the quarterback, Will Levis. This year, I actually think the quarterback is a little bit underrated. That's why I'm in on Kentucky. Devin Leary comes in from NC State. And for all the talk we had about Will Levis at this time last year, I don't think enough people are talking about Devin Leary. This was a guy that in his last season as the starting quarterback at NC State, you know what he did? 35 touchdowns, six interceptions. Oh, by the way, they beat Clemson, his final final healthy season, 2021. They beat Clemson. They beat Florida State. They beat UNC, nine and three, 36 touchdowns. And there was thought that he was going to go to the NFL after that year. Decides to come back and gets hurt last year. That's why he entered the transfer portal. But if he's healthy, He's one of the better quarterbacks in the SEC. You had a thousand-yard rusher, Ray Davis, from Vanderbilt out of the portal. And here's the other thing with the well Will Levis narrative from last year. Going into the draft, oh, he didn't have NFL wide receivers. No, he did. They were just young. Barry and Brown, 60 catches last year, is an NFL wide receiver. High four-star, had an offer from Alabama coming out of high school. That dude can play anywhere in college football. As a matter of fact, Mark Stoops was freaking out going into portal season thinking that somebody was tampering going to lose him. Dane Key, freshman last year from the state of Kentucky, 39 catches as a freshman. Those are two NFL bodies, even if they were young. And so this idea that Will Levin, oh, he didn't have enough wide receiver help. It was young, but he had wide receiver help. Also, O-line, I do think it was fair to criticize them last year. Well, guess what? That O-line is much improved in 2023. Uh, you add a bunch of pieces out of the portal, Cortland Ford from USC, Tanner Bowles from Alabama, Ben Chrisman from Ohio State, Marquise Cox, two-time all-MAC player at Northern Illinois. I'll just say this. If you're going to add guys out of the portal, there's worse places to do it from than Alabama, Ohio State, and USC. So the offense, I think, is much improved. And I do think the defense, listen, Mark Stoops, it's what he does. I think it's five out of the top six years. They've had a top 25 defense nationally. Defense will be good. Offense just needs to be a little bit better. And I think it will be under Devin Leary. Now, I don't know if this team has enough to get to the SEC championship game. They're still in the same division as Georgia. And it is also worth noting, they do have Alabama on the schedule this year, which is never advantageous. But I like Kentucky as the second best team in the SEC East. Final storyline. Final storyline. Because it's interesting, right? Um, Usually, the SEC, there's always like, major, major coaching turnover and change in this and that this year, there are two new coaches. You know, one is very unfortunate, obviously with the passing of Mike Leach, Zach Arnett, his defensive coordinator has taken over, but I want to focus on the other new coaching hire in the sec. That's Hugh freeze at all. And I know Hugh freeze has been on the show a few times. I'm fascinated to see what he can do. And I'm fascinated with what he's already done. And I'm fascinated to see what Auburn can do this season. Remember as bad as you remember Auburn being last year, they finished five and seven. They went into the iron bowl. They weren't going to beat Alabama because they, it was Alabama, but they went into the iron bowl. If they won the iron bowl, they were going to, they were going to a bowl game. Instead, Brian Harson's out. Hugh freezes in and, We can only judge a guy based on what he's done so far. He's been unbelievable so far. You know that when he took over, the 2023 recruiting class was ranked in like the 60s. It finished 18th nationally. Like, what are we even talking about? 18th nationally for Hugh Freeze. Oh, by the way, on top of that, got kids to flip from Miami, kids to flip from Florida State, from Ohio State. These are four-star guys, high four-star guys. Of course, in the portal era, maybe portal recruiting is even more important. Hugh Freeze has killed it. Peyton Thorne won 11 games two years ago at Michigan State. Uh, who else? Caleb Burton, wide receiver from Ohio State. Jair Shorter, Ohio uh, wide receiver, North Texas. 3-4 offensive lineman, elite talent on the offensive line. And so I look at this Auburn team. I think the talent upgrade in one offseason is as significant as anywhere in college football. And I, yeah, by the way, maybe, maybe outside of Colorado, but the talent upgrade is there. And then the other thing with Auburn, that's worth noting. The schedule by Auburn standards is pretty manageable. Now, right now under the current structure of the sec, it's never easy for Auburn because they have to play Alabama and Georgia every year. But this year, the out of conference schedule is manageable. It's UMass at home at Cal Berkeley, Samford at home, New Mexico state at home. That feels like 4 0 to me. Also, first SEC game at AM. I like AM. I just told you that. But can you catch AM off guard early before they get confidence? Maybe that's a thing. Your cross division game, you do have Georgia, but you also get Vanderbilt in a cross division game. So look, it's going to be an uphill battle, and the West is loaded this year. And even going forward, whether we have an eight, nine game SEC schedule, you're probably going to get Georgia and Alabama every single season. And so I bring it up to just very simply say, Auburn's got its challenges in year one under Hugh Freeze, but I think they have a chance to be pretty, pretty, pretty good at the very least get to six and six and bowl eligible. All right. This is what I want to do. That was a long first segment, by the way. Shout out to Torres. I, I told you, I-, I just can't do the 20, you know, the the six, the, the-, the 14 minute segment, like the 12 minute segment. Had to go five deep on that. Those are my five biggest SEC storylines. What I do want to do, take a quick break, come back. There was another storyline from the weekend. Jeremy Pruitt, Tennessee, former head coach. The NCAA's investigation is complete. Punishments are handed down. You do not want to miss what Jeremy Pruitt was accused of at Tennessee. All right, we're going to get back to the show in a minute. But before we do... I want to welcome back our presenting sponsor, Betfred Sportsbook and the Betfred Sportsbook app. By now, you know Betfred's story started in 1967 in the UK, over a thousand shops in the UK, and they have now come to the United States and made a major splash. They are the presenting sponsor of not only all things Aaron Torres Media, but the Colorado Rockies, the Denver Broncos, the Cincinnati Bengals. And what I love about Betfred, Nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred does. I've been telling you that for a year. We have sent listeners of the Aaron Torres pod to Denver Broncos VIP tailgates. The Betfred suite at Cincinnati Bengals games is rocking. Betfred bettors have thrown out first pitch at the Colorado Rockies games. Nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred. And here is what they are doing for you right now. How about this? Bet $50 on any game. Get up to $1,111 in free bets. Here's how it works. Download the Betfred Sportsbook app. Bet 50 bucks on anything you want to bet on. You automatically get $111 in free bets. But beyond that, you get up to $200 in insurance for your first five weeks as a Betfred customer, totaling $1,111 in free bets. I've told you for a year, nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred. They're the only book that I bet with
1: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right,
2: everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Do want to switch gears. uh, And I do want to talk about, uh, obviously, look, SEC Media Days is what is taking over the college sports kind of ecosystem right now this week. But at the same time, there was a very important and interesting college football story that broke late Friday, or right after I finished recording Friday's Aaron Torres Pod. It involved the Tennessee Volunteers, the Tennessee Football Program, and more importantly, the Tennessee Football Program under former head coach Jeremy Pruitt. Jeremy Pruitt, of course, was the head coach for, what, three, four years there at some point. I think he got hired in 2018, got fired in the winter of 2021. But I bring it up, you know, Tennessee's obviously been doing well under Josh Heupel, intrigued by them coming into this year, but they had not yet had a resolution on the NCA investigation that had gone into Jeremy Pruitt's time as the Tennessee head coach. Well, on Friday, we did get that resolution to all of the crazy allegations and things that Jeremy Pruitt did. And what I want to do now is talk about what happened to Tennessee, what Jeremy Pruitt did and all the craziness that happened around this punishment and this program over the last three or four years. But let me start by saying this. In terms of the punishment that Tennessee football got, here's what you need to know. They will not have a postseason ban. I'm in favor of that. We'll explain why momentarily. They did get fined over $8 million, which the NCAA basically said, look, normally five years ago, he would have given you a two-year postseason ban. We're not going to do that. But $8 million is about what you would have made by playing in the 2023 and 2024 postseasons, so we are going to fine you that. Oh, by the way, there are going to be 28 scholarships reduced over the next five years. There is going to be limitations on when you can recruit, how much you can recruit, the players you can bring to campus for unofficial and official visits, etc. And then, oh, by the way, on top of that, there were individual punishments specifically for Jeremy Pruitt, who got a six-year show cause. Basically, me and Jeremy Pruitt will not be coaching college football anytime soon, if ever again. And so those were the punishments for Tennessee football. I saw a lot of people say, oh, they got off light. No postseason ban, to which I would say, I don't think they got off light at all. Do I think it was a fair punishment? I do. Do I think it was a light or easy punishment? I do not. So let's get into it. Let's break it down. But let me start before I even get into what Tennessee was punished with. I want to get into what Tennessee was punished for because you talk about insanity across college football and just systematic cheating run amok. That is what Tennessee was under Jeremy Pruitt. Not saying Tennessee's a bad school. What I am saying is Jeremy Pruitt, boy, oh boy, oh boy, boy, oh boy, oh boy, was there a lot going on. Remember, by the way, the Jeremy Pruitt case was the one that allegedly involved money in McDonald's bags. That didn't happen but just about everything else did. So here is what the NCA found out about Tennessee, okay? And before we get into what they did, there are two quick caveats that I want to mention prior to telling you what Tennessee did. One, we got to remember this was pre-NIL, okay? So the uh, the numbers and the dollar amounts that are going to be thrown around, they're not going to feel like a big deal. But one, it did still break the rules. And two, a lot of what they did even in the NIL era would break violations of the NCA protocols. So don't give me the, oh, everybody's getting paid, who cares? I know, wait till you hear what they have to say. And two, it is important to note that many of these things happened during COVID in 2020. It was obviously a different world. So here's what you need to know about what Tennessee did, okay? So first of all, in terms of Tennessee and what they did, a couple things stand out. One, as I said, systematic, and that word is not hyperbole, systematic cheating, in terms of unofficial visits and getting kids on campus okay so remember in college sports there's two kinds of visits there's the official visits in which the school pays for lodging hotel food meals travel whatever unofficial visits are supposed to be paid for by the individual student athlete the player right Um, And that's why you're limited to five official visits. And you can take unlimited official visits, unofficial visits, because basically they're saying like, look, the school should only be on the hook for so many of these things. You can't just fly around the country taking 10, 20 official visits. Uh, We got to limit some of this stuff. Anyway, on those unofficial visits, again, the player and his family are supposed to pay for it. Well, that was not the case at Tennessee at all. Okay. So this is what happened at Tennessee, basically, when they would have unofficial visitors into town. They would call ahead to the hotel, make sure the room was set. Then an assistant coach, a staffer, or whatever, would go down, pay for that room in cash. Restaurants would be called in advance. Hey, we got a party of four, party of six, party of eight coming in. We'll come back and settle that up later. Just go ahead and put it on our tab. We'll take care of it. They'd come back and settle it in cash. Obviously, it goes without saying unofficial visits are not supposed to be paid for by the school. So you don't want to leave a paper trail. So Tennessee was had the the hotels locked in. They had the restaurants locked in and they went back and paid for it later. Here's the wild part though. On top of all of that, the other part was this is that they were purposely deceiving the school. This was the craziest part that I found out of all of this stuff. Okay. So it's one thing you pay for restaurants, food, hotels, whatever in cash. Coach has been doing that since the beginning of time. It happens everywhere, whatever. Love it, hate it, whatever. I've never heard of this, though. Tennessee's recruiting staff was actually putting together two separate itineraries prior to all these unofficial visits. That way they could submit one to the school, to the compliance department, which oversees, make sure you're not breaking NCAA rules. That one would say, oh, yeah, John Smith gets in at 2 p.m., you know, whatever, he paid for this, he paid for that. And then they had the second itinerary, which is what actually happened where they were breaking all the rules. So that was one. The second major thing that they did, they had a bunch of recruits on campus during COVID. And if you remember during that time, and I know at this point it was a long time ago, but the NCA had about a five, six, seven, eight month dead period in recruiting where you couldn't bring kids on campus. Now we can agree or disagree now based on the facts that we have, but at the time it wasn't deemed controversial. But basically what the NCA said was pretty straightforward. They basically said like, look, here's the deal. End of day, end of story. Like every state has slightly different rules on who can come in, who can come out, what the testing policies are, whatever. Again, it sounds dumb now, but in 2020, most did not deem it to be dumb. So the NCA just basically said, look, nobody can have kids on campus at all at any point um, just to keep the, the playing field level, right? It's not fair if say... Georgia's laws allow you to come on campus and hang out and do whatever and this and that. And then, you know, another school in another part of the country doesn't have kids on campus and you're not allowed to bring kids on campus. So the NCAA just said no recruiting visits at all under any circumstance. Again, just something Tennessee said, yeah, you know what? That's a rule, but we're not really going to abide by that. They had, I believe the number was nine players on campus at that point. Obviously it goes without saying that all those players had their, lodging, hotels, meals, etc., paid for. Again, in violation of NCAA rules. And it's worth noting, and I remember saying this with Arizona State, which got busted for the same thing, uh, bringing in recruits during COVID. I just think it's dumb. I think it's dumb because at the time, everybody was playing by the same set of rules, right? So like, why, if you know, Georgia can't bring in kids and you know, Alabama can't bring in kids. And I I know somebody will say, Oh, they were obviously doing it and they just never got caught. But the bottom line remains is that like, there was no reason to bring kids on campus because nobody was visiting campuses anywhere. So just dumb, just idiotic, whatever. So we have the unofficial visits that are paid for uh, fake itineraries. We have Uh, 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 you know, a lot of kids coming to campus to visit during a COVID dead period. But I all know what you're thinking. I know society is full of Jeremy Pruitt defenders. And yes, I'm being sarcastic. I know Tennessee fans probably hate Jeremy Pruitt more than anybody. But the question becomes, well, what did Jeremy Pruitt actually know? It's the old, what could the coach have possibly known? He's busy putting together game plans. Well, as we found out, and I remember talking about this when the initial report came out a year ago of allegations not only was jeremy pruitt actively involved with all of this how about this jeremy pruitt had his wife dropping bags to kids and their parents yes another one that i have never heard of i'm not saying i've never heard of a, uh, the head coach himself handing out a, a little cash here or there helping a kid here or there whatever we can debate whether it's good or bad i have never heard of a coach's wife Dropping bags, only that's exactly what Jeremy Pruitt's wife was doing. Two instances the NCAA found. The first was a player. Kid came to campus. Jeremy Pruitt took care of the kid, took care of the kid's mom. $6,000, which helped pay for a car. Again, we can agree or disagree whether that's right or wrong, whether it even matters in the NIL era. What's interesting, though, is once the kid got to campus, you know who was dropping bags every month? to make sure that the kid was taken care of and the kid's mom was taken care of? Oh, yeah, Jeremy Pruitt's wife. That's right. She was dropping $500 a month to the kid's mom to make sure the car got paid off. So how about Jeremy Pruitt's wife? The second one, by the way, Jeremy Pruitt gave $3,000 to a recruit and a recruit's mom for a medical procedure that needed to get done or to pay off bills so she could get another procedure. That medical procedure, by the way, was hip surgery. Jeremy Pruitt paid for a recruits or a player's mom's hip surgery. Maybe you've heard of that. I know that I never have. Shout out Jeremy Pruitt, who said chivalry's dead. That's right. So that is what happened at Tennessee. Um, And what's interesting was kind of sort of like how they got caught. Okay. And so first of all, big credit to my buddy, uh, Trey Wallace, who now works for Outkick. He's been on this show a couple of times as good as anybody covering college football. He was the one that broke a lot of these details. But what was interesting was part of the reason that the punishment was, quote, unquote, a little bit light was because Tennessee was so active in making sure that they brought all of these details to light. This all broke because somebody overheard the coaches talking about players getting paid, reported it to the school chancellor. The school chancellor then launches his own investigation or her own investigation. I don't know if it's a male or female chance. Beyond that, I found this very interesting. The director of compliance, again, compliance overseas, make sure you're playing by the NCAA rules, director of compliance, then went to hotels, restaurants, asked for receipts, asked for video surveillance footage. Are you like, like this story is insane. Maybe that's what all compliance directors do. I will be blunt. When I was in college, I actually did work in the compliance office. I've never heard of a compliance director or an assistant compliance director going to hotels, getting surveillance footage for schools in an NCA investigation. So obviously, because Tennessee was so proactive, because they fired Jeremy Pruitt, this is why they were hit with the punishment that they were. Again, if you remember, it was no postseason ban, uh, an $8 million fine, 28 scholarships, taken away over the next five years, although I'm a little confused because I believe they've already taken away some previously. And then, as I said, limitations on recruiting. Ten Saturdays over the next, you know, five years. So two home games a year, you can't have official visitors. That's a big deal. And then there are several weeks a year where they're not allowed to recruit at all, have no communication with recruits, which I think is big at all. First of all, from the no bowl ban perspective, let me start by saying this. I like it a lot. And I like it a lot because this is what you guys and girls have told me you've wanted in terms of NCAA punishment for years. And I tend to agree is that what you, what you want is you don't want the current players and the current coaches who had nothing to do with the violations at hand being punished for things that they had no control over. At this point, I I would venture to guess there's barely a handful of players in the Tennessee program who were even recruited by Jeremy Pruitt, let alone played for him. And those kids shouldn't be punished. They shouldn't be punished with a bowl ban. They should be allowed to go to the postseason. Obviously, if they're good enough to qualify for the college football playoff, they should be allowed to do that. So I like that. I like it a lot. I should mention, by the way, the $8 million fine. Like, I know it's 2023 and we got, you know, tens of millions of dollars rolling in with TV money. But that's not an insubstantial amount especially when you factor in all of the legal fees that it took to fight the NCAA, fight Jeremy Pruitt, all that stuff. Now, again, part of it was obviously to avoid paying Jeremy Pruitt a $13 million buyout, but $8 million ain't chump change. Okay. Um, And I do think this is something I've actually thought about for a while. Like I remember going back years. I mean, I'm talking a decade probably back when people actually cared about punishing schools for violating NCAA rules. And I said, don't don't give out bowl bans. Don't give out postseason bans. Find the find the athletic department. Take away their money. Hit their wallet. That's how it's. That's how you're going to impact change. And that's what I think happened here. I'd add a couple more things. One, as I said a minute ago, I don't think the punish, I don't think Tennessee got off light on the punishment. That's been a lot of reaction from a lot of non-Tennessee fans. Oh, they got off light. They got off easy. Not getting a postseason ban is not getting off easy. As I said. 28 scholarships over the course of five years is not insubstantial. That's five fewer players a year, six fewer players a year, every recruiting class for several years. You know how much that's going to impact the depth chart, the depth of the team. We all know how college football seasons work. We all know how football seasons work in general. If you listen to this show, you love football, whether it's professional or college, I guess it's college, but still, if not both depth, attrition, attrition, Injuries, guys don't work out, guys get thrown off the team. Stuff happens over the course of the college football season, and you need dudes, you need bodies. Tennessee is going to have fewer bodies than their opponents. The recruiting stuff, again, is not insubstantial. I bring it up. They have to limit recruiting communication. They can't reach out to recruits a couple weeks a year. That includes in December and January, which is peak portal season. Everybody's competing for the same players, and there's going to be times where Alabama can call a guy. Georgia can call a guy. uh, Clemson can call a guy. Kentucky can call a guy. Whoever Tennessee's recruiting against can call a guy. Tennessee can't like, don't tell me that these are insubstantial things. They're not. But finally, what I would also say is that I I I do think that the punishment in my opinion is fair. I don't think they got off easy. Last thing I would say is I had a few people say, you know, This is kind of a a not insubstantial punishment. So there there were some people that thought, okay, they got off too easy. There's others that are like, it's not insubstantial. And the question becomes, and I had a few people ask me this, is the NCAA back in the enforcement game? Like, is this proof that the NCAA is going to stand up and say, you break the rules, we're coming after you? That I don't believe. I think this was a unique case because it happened in the pre-NIL era. But the one thing I keep hearing again and again from coaches and administrators publicly, by the way, not, this isn't like a, I got on the phone with so-and-so and and they told me this, but I can't share their name or who they are. No. Like schools are basically saying whatever the NIL laws in our state are, we're going to abide by them. We don't care what the NCA says. If you remember a few weeks ago, the NCA made a statement about, you know, uh, if, if your state law conflicts with NCA rules, schools are expected to play by the NCA rules even if it even if it's in in line with your state law. Remember what Ross Bjork, Texas A&M AD said was asked about this and he said you know what he said he goes we're abiding by the state law next question. And just dismissed it as if no, whatever the state law says is what Texas A&M is going to do. And so you don't think that's the same at Texas, at Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, whoever. So I don't think this is some indictment that the NCA is back baby. They're handing out punishments left and right fascinating story, interesting story. The good news I would, I would add, of course it goes without saying Tennessee's in great shape under, uh, uh, Josh Heupel really excited about this program. I don't, you know, but, but I don't think they got off easy. I think Josh Heupel will figure it out because he's a smart guy and a good coach, but I don't think they got off easy. I just want to do take a quick break. When I come back, one last segment as Kentucky basketball from Tennessee to Kentucky. Techie basketball had a summer tour this weekend. We talked about the first two games on. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. Do want a wrap. Believe it or not. With just a tiny little bit of college hoops. Now I understand. SEC media days of this week, that's going to take up most of the oxygen in the college sports world. Same with the fact that this Tennessee uh, NCA situation is insanity. But at the same time, as I mentioned on Friday's show, by the way, shout out to the YouTube subscribers, because I may have downloaded the wrong clip on Friday, did a reaction on Thursday, and then on Friday downloaded Thursday's reaction for Friday, neither here nor there. But the bottom line is this. I am talking a little bit of college basketball because there's an interesting event that took place over the last couple of days. It's called the Global Jam. It's an under-23 international tournament played in Canada. And it is, you know, essentially a traditional, you know, mainstream event. Uh, they hand out gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal, whatever. And it's played by teams all over the world. So the uh the, the Canada sends a team, Germany sent a team to represent Europe, Africa sent a team, etc. Well, the US. Rather than picking different players from different parts of the country, they decided for the second year in a row to just send an entire college team. So a year ago, Baylor came to this same event. Instead of representing, uh, you know, instead of picking individual players for a U.S. team, Baylor just came to this event, went one and four and struggled. This year, though, Kentucky was the U.S. representative in this event. And so I bring it up. I wouldn't talk about it on two straight shows. But did anybody besides me actually watch Kentucky this weekend? Kentucky went 4-0 in this event. Absolutely dominant fashion. Wins the gold medal against teams full of high major college players, older professional players. Again, 21, 22, 23-year-old grown men. And I just got to be honest. I think there is a distinct possibility that a lot of people may have underestimated this Kentucky team and going into this year Kentucky may be better than we realized. I know. I know it's only July. I know we got four months to the start of the season and another, what, seven, eight months until March Madness. But I'm just here to say, I always say, right, we're doing the show tonight. We got to react to the information that we have right now. And I don't want to overreact to an international tournament. But Kentucky looked freaking awesome in this event. And I am so, so, so fired up for this season because I think they might be better than people realize now, in terms of this event, a couple of things stood out. One, listen, and I've said it over the course of the weekend. I was a guy, I was pretty critical of Kentucky and John Calipari early in the spring. I understood that they had a, a highly ranked recruiting class, but I thought in terms of the portal, in terms of older players, I thought John Calipari was dragging his feet too much. I thought he was waiting too long. If you remember to start uh, June, he only had seven scholarship players on his roster. But what I'll also say is this, once the roster got settled again, June one, there were seven scholarship players. Then Antonio Reeves returned from the NBA draft process. They got a transfer from West Virginia named Trey Mitchell. They added two freshmen afterwards. I'll say this. I did think that there was a possibility. And I did think realistically that people were probably a little bit underestimating Kentucky coming out of mid June and late June. And once they made their final additions to this roster, the one thing I said is this. I, I was critical early, but I also said, when I see other national media members, oh, Kentucky's not even a top 25 team, or they're a fringe top 25 team. So, what wait a second now. I get that they were a little slow in the portal, and I get that college basketball is now an older man sport. You guys do understand, though, that they have the number one recruiting class in the country, five top 25 prospects, three future lottery picks, And so when I watch this team in Canada, that is the one thing that stood out. This is an old school John Calipari team. John Calipari, you can like him, you can hate him, you can love him, you can this, you can that. But in his best times as Kentucky basketball coach, they've essentially all had one thing in common. His teams generally have been really talented and really young, and then he has filled around the young players with smart veteran players. Go back to the 2012 National Championship team. Anthony Davis, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, Marquise Teague, as true freshmen, led that team. I'm probably missing somebody else. Marcus Teague, whatever. They also had Darius Miller, fourth-year senior, Terrence uh, Terrence Jones, Deron Lamb, that helped them. The twenty, you know, you go through all his teams. The best players are generally freshmen, and so I do think there is something to the fact that his best players are freshmen, NBA prospects, and for all the criticism, it was interesting to note. They do have like three projected lottery picks on this team, one of which Aaron Bradshaw did not even play in this event. Justin Edwards and DJ Wagner are two of generally the top three, four high school prospects playing college basketball this year. Always thought that was underappreciated, and those guys showed out. When Kentucky needed dudes to make plays, DJ Wagner was awesome early in the event. Justin Edwards with 17 points in the first half of the championship game was great late. It was the freshman that took over. John Calipari has said for a decade and a half at Kentucky, and he said it again during this tournament. You guys have asked me for years, do I want talent or do I want experience? I'm taking talent every single time. Beyond that, the other thing that stood out, you watch these games, Calipari's best teams, right? When Calipari got to Kentucky, what was the the concept? It was, we run the dribble drive, which was basically catch, rip, go. Catch, hit the basket, attack. Watching this team, I was kind of blown away because I'm just going to say we've seen a certain type of basketball played by Kentucky over the last couple of years. This team's completely different. And listen, I talked about it on Friday's show. I love Oscar Sheepway. Love what he did for Kentucky. Love what he's about. All American, all time great. Probably have his jersey retired at some point. I don't think I realized how limited you are when you have Oscar Sheepway as your starting center until I watched this event. When I watch this event, you realize with Oscar Shibwe, the offense runs through the low post. Got to dump it in. Got to wait to see what he does. Is he going to kick it back out? Is he going to pass it? Is he going to dribble? Is he going to take a mid-range jump shot? What is he going to do? On defense, you can't full court press. You don't have rim protection. You're limited in what you can do. Watching this Kentucky team this week, and I tweeted it on Saturday night or Saturday afternoon when they played the African team. I said, this team is full of guys that just catch, rip, and go. When I say rip, what I mean is I catch, rip through the defender's arm that's trying to defend you and then attack the basket. Watch this team. DJ Wagner can get to the rim anytime he wants. Reed Shepard, freshman, Kentucky, can get to the rim anytime he wants. Rob Dillingham can get to the rim anytime he wants. Justin Edwards, anytime he wants. Antonio Reeves largely can. Trey Mitchell can make plays off the bounce. The center that transferred in from West Virginia. This is a different team, and I I think they're going to surprise some people when the season starts. In terms of individuals, I just mentioned maybe the most important player in Canada. I'm blown away by how good Trey Mitchell looks. Trey Mitchell, I've watched him for four years in college, started at UMass, went to Texas, ends up at West Virginia. He was always a good player, but he was a player. He never really stood out that much to me. Nice mid-range jumper, not an elite athlete, not an elite rim protector, good on the boards, whatever. He was awesome in Canada. First game, back-to-back threes in the third quarter opened things up. Final game. He was kind of the the one piece early on that had a ton of effect. He was very good early. I should mention the other veteran on this roster, Antonio Reeves, was phenomenal. 27 points in Saturday's win, eight three-pointers made. This was the guy, again, if you love college basketball, remember, last year, Final game of the regular season, 37 points at Arkansas, 22 points against Vanderbilt in the SEC tournament, 22 points against Providence in the opening round of the NCAA tournament. He was playing with confidence uh, towards the end of the season, but he played with a different degree of confidence in Canada. And you can tell what type of impact that he is having on this team. Finished with 18 points in the victory over Canada in the championship game. Beyond that, let me credit where it's due. The freshman were awesome okay one I mentioned it Reed Shepard high school player from the state of Kentucky and listen I I think most people listening know his father final four MVP at Kentucky MOP in 1998 and I said it on Friday show like I I don't think Calipari would have recruited him if he couldn't play at Kentucky Calipari doesn't hand out scholarships like their charity paperwork if he couldn't play he wouldn't play there But the fact remains is that he was awesome in this tournament. Um, You know, I saw John Ralston even tweet out after three games, 18 points or 18 assists, three turnovers through three games in the tournament. Basically, that's I'm not great at math, but that's a six to one assist to turnover ratio. He was unbelievable. I have completely changed my opinion on him, what he does, what he's capable of, what his upside is for this team. On top of that, let me also add this. Um, you know, the rest of the freshmen, I mentioned it earlier, Justin Edwards started the tournament slow, finished strong 23 points in the championship game, 17 in the second ha- in the first half really carried this team when they struggled early on Sunday. And then DJ Wagner, I just think he is kind of that calming force, that guy that can get to the rim anytime he wants. And again, it goes back to what I said a minute ago. Calipari's best teams have had NBA talent in the freshman class. I'll take it a step further. They've had NBA caliber point guards. De'Aaron Fox, uh, whoever, John Wall, Derek Rose, dating back to the um, dating back to the Memphis days, Marcus Teague, as I just mentioned, part of that 2022 team, Brandon Knight. You go on and on down the list. He's had great play at point guard, and I think this kid is next, although I really think what's kind of cool about this Kentucky team is they really have two, maybe three guys who can run the point. Wagner, Reed Shepard, maybe even Rob Dillingham, who I actually thought played well in the championship game. Started out the tournament slow, played well late. One other player I should mention, I'm basically going through the roster at this point, Adu Thiero was basically a reserve that got thrown into action as a freshman last year. He was awesome. Super athletic, plays super hard, attacks the rim. I'm excited to watch him. I cannot believe it. And I bring it up to very simply say this. We can end on the show. I don't need to spend an hour and a half breaking down Kentucky basketball in in, 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 uh, in July. But what I would say is two things. One, I do think I was wrong on this team. And I get it. Long way to the season. You play Kansas early in the year with Hunter Dickinson and all those guys. Yeah, obviously you're going to be in a loaded SEC with a good Tennessee team and a good Arkansas team and a good Auburn team. I think Florida is going to be better this year. Uh, who else am I missing? Bama with Nate Oates. He's always got a squad. So I'm not handing this team anything. But what I will say, two things stood out from this event. One, I just think they're better than we thought. But And, and two, well, it's really three things that have stood out. Two, I would also say I think they're probably mentally tougher than I gave them credit for. There was two different times in this tournament where it felt like their backs were against the wall against Africa on Saturday. Africa cut the lead. They immediately rally, go on a 9-0 run, pull away and win in a dominant fashion. But two, they're a really fun team to watch as well. This was a team that in the championship game against Canada put up 89 points, put up 93 in a victory earlier in the tournament against Canada, and then put up 104 points on Saturday against Africa. So I've said what I had to say. I'm doing what I had to do. Um, But I'll just say this. I am so excited to watch this Kentucky team. And I think they are going to surprise some people once the season starts. They're better than I thought they were. They were awesome in this tournament. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It's time for me to get out of here. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. I'll be back later in the week. We're going to talk a lot of SEC media days. A lot is going to happen this week in Nashville Wish I could be there. Travel restrictions limited me, but we will have plenty of reaction. Time for me to go. Time for me to get out of here. But I appreciate everybody's support. And we are going to keep on rolling through July into August. So with that said, you know what I'm going to say. Shout out to Torrin Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick. You F-head unblock me, bro. I will be back on Wednesday. New episode of spot.